0: Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. Each week you'll hear interviews with some of the world's leading corporate governance experts, including founders, scholars, board members, executives, investors, and more. This is a long form and open-ended podcast with no set agenda, but to hear the stories and wisdom from some of the most distinguished governance experts. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Hi everyone. In this episode, I talk with Elizabeth Pullman, a professor of law and the co-director of the Institute for Law and Economics at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Prior to joining Penn Law, Elizabeth was a professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. Before joining the faculty at Loyola, Elizabeth was a fellow at the stanford Rock Center for Corporate Governance. After graduating from Stanford Law School in the mid-2000s, Elizabeth practiced as a startup lawyer with Latham and Watkins for a few years and clerked at the Ninth Circuit. She has since become a leading corporate law scholar, focusing on corporate governance, purpose and personhood, as well as startups, entrepreneurship and law and technology. In this conversation, we discuss the content of two articles that she authored on startup governance and regulatory entrepreneurship. We cover some foundational questions in a field that has been under-researched in comparison to public companies. At the end of our conversation, we go through a set of rapid-fire questions where you get to know a more personal side of Elizabeth. If you like this show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast with colleagues or friends. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast, including show notes and reference materials at www.boardroom-governance.com. Okay. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you very much for taking the time to join this podcast. It's a new endeavor. So it's great to have you. Um, you know, first of all, I hope you're doing fine and you're safe. Uh, where are you these days?
1: I'm at my home in Los Angeles and fortunately I'm doing fine. And um, of course it's a difficult time in the world and um, really troubled by all the things that I'm seeing, but I'm personally doing well and I'm in California.
0: That sounds great. I mean, California is a great place to be, uh, although we do have all these challenges. So part of the focus of this podcast is to get experts in governance. And that means people who are either directors or scholars or founders or investors. And in my mind, you fall in the scholar category. There are two specific articles that I think we should discuss. Uh, One of them is your uh, article on startup governance, and the other one is on the regulatory entrepreneurship. And let's start with the uh, startup governance paper, which I think is uh, very, very good. Anyone who's interested in startups, anyone who's interested in governance and wants to understand uh, corporate governance at the startup level, I think this is a must read. So your paper is kind of, I think, foundational, and it's a great place to get kind of the lay of the land. And so let me ask you first, uh, why did you write the article and and what did you uh, seek to achieve with it?
1: Yeah, thanks, Evan. Well, um, there's really rich and long-standing corporate law literature. It's tended to be very focused on public corporations, especially in the last several decades. The literature has just been dominated heavily by scholars that will often even just say that their theory or their study only applies to public corporations. And there's been, alongside that, also a literature on traditional closely held corporations and the typical types of issues that come up in those. And and through those two strands of literature, there's been some dominant theories in each. So with regards to public corporations, the principal agent theory of the corporation, which is a, a vertical relationship imagining the shareholders as the principal and the managers, which usually um, collapses the the board of directors and the executives as one managerial agent, um, and often looks at public corporations through that lens um, uh, about agency costs. And in the closely held corporation literature, which is a a smaller literature, but but developed uh, as well, uh, t- has tended to focus on issues of controlling shareholders and minority oppression, a horizontal relationship among the shareholders. Mm-hmm. And uh, a- as somebody that practiced as a startup lawyer and has worked as um, at a startup and spent um, many years in California, of course, I see that there's a whole other kind of corporation that the literature hasn't done as much to um, study and explore. There has been a, a good venture capital literature, especially in venture capital mm-hmm. uh, contracting and um, entrepreneurial finance. It's tended to mm-hmm. use that vertical um, same type of lens that looks at the the venture capitalist as the principal and the entrepreneur as the agent. Um, and I thought, I've, I've thought for a long time that that type of literature... Um, is really important, but it doesn't fully capture what's going on in venture-backed startups in particular. And as they've become more important over time to our economy and our society, I think it's more important that more uh, corporate law scholars spend time thinking about them.
0: That's very important. And the reality is, The ecosystem of startups, of venture capital, of financing has changed so much. Even in the last five years, 10 years, uh, you know, I've been in Silicon Valley for 15 years and things that are happening now are completely different. And so you and your article touch a lot on some of these trends and maybe we should go and, and, and we should talk about some of them. Uh, I think the first one is this trend that companies are staying private for longer. So tell us more about this trend. Why are companies staying private for longer?
1: There's lots of contributing factors. Um, One factor has been that there's been more private capital available. Another factor has been that securities laws have changed in the past uh, bunch of years that allow for this. Um, And one example of that would be the Jobs Act of 2012, which Mm -hmm. raised the threshold under Exchange Act Section 12G, which had previously um, set the the number of record holder shareholders um, at 500. And that got raised to 2000. And there's some details about accredited investor status in that. But the big picture is it raised the bar so that companies aren't forced to go public um based on their number of record holders until they hit a much higher threshold and that can be managed um, and so companies aren't being forced through federal securities laws to go public unless they want to there's more private let me capital.
0: ask you sorry I, I didn't mean to interrupt but let, let me ask you a question about that side so if the jobs act was done to facilitate ipos by raising the threshold you're maintaining these private status why is that kind of does that make sense
1: (laughs) well there were um i don't know that it makes sense it was um the result of a political process uh, and it has tensions in the law that on the whole um uh, scholars have studied this as well about how much the on-ramp that was established through the jobs act has actually worked to stimulate companies to go public and it seems like on the whole Done more to allow companies to stay private than motivated them to mm-hmm. go public. Um, though companies have used the confidential filing and the on-ramp, that it has been used. Um, what we've also seen, though, is many, many companies have instead um, chosen to stay private, and that was facilitated by the JOBS Act. There were other securities law changes too about um, easing the restrictions on trading private company stock, for example, that also facilitates staying private longer. Um, because of the liquidity problems that can arise um, as the company matures and people want to be able to sell their stock. Um, That had previously also been something that had limited the ability of companies to stay private. So there were a number of regulatory changes as well as this huge influx of private capital.
0: I think that's an important point. And I know you wrote another article, early article on secondary markets, Uh, This is secondary markets for private company shares. And I I believe this is a very important development because it allowed entrepreneurs and employees to get some liquidity, right? Uh, And it kind of eased the ability of companies to stay private for longer. Uh, There are really three sides of that, right? There is the secondary markets, but there are also the third-party tender offers and there are uh, the share buybacks that companies can do uh you know for, for their uh, employee shares uh, you mentioned in your paper palantir's 225 million uh, deal to acquire up to 12.5 percent of some of their employee shares you you know you also talk a little bit about the third party tender offers with uber's famous um you know sale to softbank you know when they invested uh when travis was leaving and they had this deal where they bought into about 15 to 20 percent of the of the equity uh, they invested about nine billion dollars. I think it's a big deal. We're seeing a new version with WeWork. So let's talk about yeah, and we this just saw the market this week because with Carta,
1: um, potentially Car- yeah. Uh, yeah 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 um, exactly uh, yeah no there's it's been a lot of uh, activity in the space in the last ten years really and there's been an evolution of thinking on um, how to do these secondary markets uh, and part of that has been that the first iteration of shares post and second market that were truly matching buyers and sellers had a lot of issues, issues that I wrote about in that earlier paper. Um, And it was also the companies that didn't like it. um, And that started putting restrictions on the stock option grants and the ability of employees, for example, to be able to trade those shares because it raises issues for the companies too, that they're going to have to deal with. So then we entered into a different, iteration of this um, with NASDAQ coming into the space as well, um, because NASDAQ was also probably in a business position where it was really keeping an eye on this because it wasn't having as many IPOs. And so it started to think about what it could do in the private space and working with companies to facilitate these liquidity events. And now we've seen a lot of other players come into the space and also thinking about how to um, uh, develop this further so that it could really be effectively a functioning market in the private space. Um, And uh, one of the issues now is that we see so so many potential players that you wouldn't have deep liquidity if you actually had too many marketplaces. So I think we're going to see continued change in this space until we end up with some, um, some type of equilibrium.
0: Yeah, I mean, Nasdaq Private Market has announced they've done twenty four billion dollars in transactions since inception. So it's a, it's pretty it's a growing market. You know, what do you think of this idea that some people have said it's a death of the public company? I mean, is that like an overstatement, or yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, does it have any any legs?
1: Yeah, I I um uh I have a little section of the startup governance paper uh, about that um, about that mm-hmm. thinking. Um, Because to me, it it could never be that stark or that bold that there would be the death of the public company or that companies would just stay private forever was another way of people saying Mm it. And Mm -hmm. the reason why is because venture-backed startups are not built for that model. They are the caterpillar and the chrysalis. They need an exit at some point unless you're imagining some ever-infinite, another private buyer that's going to come in and keep on buying and giving the kind of liquidity right. that you would need. Um, so venture-backed startups are, are aimed at an exit and their lifespan mm-hmm. is focused on getting to that. Um, and so it doesn't have to be going public should be an M&A exit. And that's much more common. Um, but at some point, some companies likely will want to go public um, and so I, I I would never expect that we would just fully see the death of the public corporation unless we saw really like a really profound change to our public markets. And
0: well, and and I and I should say that you do make this a very good contribution to the literature by saying that another reason to go public is to ease these governance concerns, these complicated capital structures. And I thought that was, you know, very thoughtful an important another argument that people you know talk about public markets is there is this very intense quarterly pressure to get results. There are these shareholder activists that put a lot of pressure on these companies. There are short sellers right that put a lot of pressure.
1: I have so many thoughts on this, uh, but okay. if I were to try to uh, get to the core of it, mm-hmm. fundamentally, what I see going on is um these two parallel universes that the SEC has allowed to arise and uh, in the past 25 years. So in the past 20, 25 years, what we've seen is the number of companies traded on U.S. public exchanges has gone down by half. The economic value is still profoundly large, but the number of companies traded is half of what it was about two decades ago. And... The SEC has allowed for this through a bunch of regulatory changes, and then there's been this huge influx of private capital. And so what we've ended up with is a public market that has more regulatory pressure, um, market pressure, and a whole system of corporate governance actors like proxy advisors and trade associations, investor associations. Um, the mutual funds and others that have come into the private space as well. But it's it's a whole ecosystem of corporate governance actors and a very heavy regulatory burden. And then there's this other universe of private, and it's been allowed to exist largely unregulated. I mean, of course, there's regulations, but in contrast, it's mm-hmm. largely unregulated. And now we've had these changes in which many of the investors in the public markets have come over into the private markets. So we have Mutual funds, sovereign wealth funds, hedge funds, pension funds, um, Mm -hmm. family office, other types of investors that didn't previously be previously hadn't been in the venture capital space are now in that space. And so we have some of the same types of investors, but we have a very different environment in terms of regulation. And that is the core issue that's been going on in my view. And I don't know what the SEC will do because it has said that it has two regulatory objectives right now. One is trying to maintain the health of the U.S. public markets. And the other Mm -hmm. thing that uh, Jay Clayton has said that they're prioritizing is trying to allow access for more people to get into the private space because of concerns about democratizing access to growth investments in the private space. And those two goals, seem to be hugely intention. Um, And so your question about like thinking about how to remake this private space, to me, the deeper question is this one about, do we allow these two parallel markets to exist and flourish? Or do we try to make Mm -hmm. them still migrate more over to the public markets like we used to do? Um, And if we don't, then do we need to rethink the regulatory structure in the private space? Because they're starting to look so much more otherwise similar as far as the companies and the investors in some instances, that it doesn't make much sense that we have such different regulatory burdens.
0: Yeah. And and I think one thing that your article does is put a a note on the evolving nature of these companies so maybe 10 years ago we didn't have these we didn't have uber and Airbnb these private companies worth over 50 billion dollars operating in a hundred different countries uh, with thousands tens of thousands of employees and so it's kind of a new space right like we had this private, Regulatory framework. We had the public, but suddenly there is this new birth of a new creature that is trying to use the advantages of the private regulatory framework. But really, uh, they are in the space, or they are they have the same constituents or uh, stakeholders and public companies. So almost there's some arbitrage there. There's a lot of innovation, I believe, in this space, and and th- this is why your article is so good because it just revisits corporate governance And, and, and public companies and private companies that say, hey, by the way, startups have these very, it has this structure and, evolution that you have to understand before regulating the space so i thought that was very good and maybe we should touch upon yeah that. what you, i think the the biggest contribution you do is separating these governance issues between vertical issues and horizontal issues and and maybe we should talk about that because i think that gives some structure beyond what is typically understood in governance circles
1: yeah um the starting point for my thinking uh well was frankly based on my own experience, uh, working with startups and seeing them up close and seeing the issues that arise. Um, uh, But my thinking was also really influenced by um, a couple of scholarly works. So Bobby Bartlett, who's at UC Berkeley has a great paper um, from like 15 years ago in which he observed that the um, vertical issue governance issue that um, exists between the investors or venture capitalists and the entrepreneurs and agency costs. The the typical solution to this uh, venture capital finance is to invest in in staged syndicated financings. VC financings are staged. That is, you do a series A, a series B. You don't give all the money that you expect will be needed at once um, so that you can set milestones and adjust or abandon the investment. Um, And you invest in syndicates of of investors. And that solution to the vertical problem creates another governance challenge, which is once you do that, you end up creating the potential for divergent interest between the preferred shareholders themselves. And we see this all of the time in venture capital. Um, And once you have a series A that has invested at a certain price and with certain terms, that could be different than the series B. And then while they're both shareholders, they have different interests. And they may not want to exit at the same time, or et cetera.
0: And, Let me, uh, you know, um, say something before we go into this. Maybe let's explain to people the distinctions between common shares and preferred shares.
1: Sure. So um, traditionally, venture capitalists have preferred to invest for convertible preferred stock rather than common stock because convertible preferred stock can come with certain preferences that are contracted for. And typical types of preferences would be, for example, a liquidation preference. And um, a typical liquidation preference, for example, could be 1x the investment amount, which would mean that the holder of that convertible preferred stock has the right to be paid out before the common stock at 1x their investment um, if there were a liquidation event. Um, so they would have effective seniority in, in the repayment. Um, You could also have um, a whole range of dividend rights and various other rights that you can contract for that give protections. Um, And venture capitalists typically wanted these sorts of terms because they could protect on the downside if the company didn't do as well as hoped for. Um, They would have some ability to recoup some of their investment and to also have some control rights over what happens to the company. Um, And so the typical method of investing in a, a, a startup would be to invest for convertible preferred stock, to also negotiate for some board seats, for example, et cetera, to be involved in the governance. And the founders and the employees would typically get some form of common stock or options for common stock. And there's variations on that, of course. But it ends up creating this capital structure in which the venture capitalists have one type of equity, convertible preferred stock. And they have different series of that, too, that has different terms. So they themselves may not all have the same type of stock. Um, They have the same fundamental convertible preferred stocks, but they have different terms. And common stock that founders and employees may have are options for that.
0: So, you know, maybe to to drill down on one example, um, you know, one of the reasons why many of these larger players, um, mutual funds, hedge funds, private equity funds, have invested in these private companies is because they can invest in preferred shares and they have these uh, anti-dilution or protective provisions or liquidation preferences that give them uh, an advantage. And one example is the case of Square, when they went public, they they had a Series E investor that bought in. I think the share was fifteen dollars, and they had protected some liquidation preferences that, in case that square got bought, they would get back their money. But in case they would go public, they would need at least eighteen point you know forty six dollars. The company goes public at nine dollars, so they got ratcheted. They got more shares. So maybe yeah. that's. It, you know, th- that's an important part of the story that people don't understand the differences in private companies that it you have this possibility to invest in preferred versus only common.
1: Yeah. And going back to the bigger picture of the framework that I set out of startup governance, what that's capturing is that there's a lot of complexity in the capital structure of a venture-backed startup. And it grows over time and it grows in a predictable way if the company survives and keeps on taking money. And so what I set out is that you'll end up with a structure because of the traditional path. If you take venture capital money, you're going to end up with this kind of preferred stock capital structure and a board that changes over time because it gets renegotiated typically at every round of venture capital financing. You'll have a a situation in which you'll have potential conflicts coming up vertically, we would say, and kind of corporate law scholarship lingo, like between the shareholders and the board, between the board and the founders or the executives, and between the shareholders and the founders, you'll see all that range of types of disputes that we could imagine as a kind of vertical type of governance issue. But you'll also have horizontal disputes between the preferred versus the common, because their interests won't always align, between the preferred themselves and be- between the common because the common themselves also founders and employees often don't have for example the same interests there may have been seed investment that came in that was also common stock but those seed investors may have very different interests than the founders or the employees Um, so what you'll have is these vertical and horizontal tensions um, that are both existing it's a dynamic structure that exists in a venture-backed startup and it will predictably increase because you keep on taking money, you keep on adding to the number of participants that have potentially diverging interests. Of course, everybody on the and, whole big picture is aligned in wanting some big successful exit. Right, but right. there's always other scenarios in which if you fall short of some big successful exit, you'll end up with dispute.
0: Right. Well, what I always end up saying is, and, and, and these governance Issues, you know, when the company is doing great, nobody cares because you know <laughs> you're a shareholder or an employee at Google or Facebook. When you go public, everybody's happy. When the company fails, everybody fails. But it's it's in these intermediate cases where there's some level of success where you have to distribute the proceeds, and then it goes between what preferred shareholders get it, the early stage, the mid stage, the late stage investors, the employees. There are issues between early employees, mid exactly level employees. It's, it's exactly, so right. it becomes very it's a
1: big success, and no problem. Everybody's happy. If it's a right. big failure, it kind of depends. And actually, I'm working on a project now that's exploring startup failure.
0: Okay. So I think yep. that's also yep. been
1: unexplored about what really happened.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but for the most part, like if it's truly like abysmal, it's like cratered, there isn't any value. Um, it's all the middle situation. I teach a venture capital class at Penn. And the class is basically mostly about that huge amount I mean we do some like stuff about the big success, okay. but like a lot of the class is focused on all of the types of issues that come up in these this big space in the middle where you could say there's been some success, but it's not it's not enough maybe to get everybody some return or these various scenarios that come up.
0: Yeah. And, and this is where we've we've seen some bad behaviors from some players, opportunistic behavior from, you know, it can come from investors. It can come from the founders. Uh, you know, I, I believe that employees are the constituency that have lost out mostly in these cases because they don't make the decision because they're not on the board. And so in many and they cases, we have- Right. And so they're common shareholders, but you have the founders who make the decision and many times get a carve out. So this is actually a really interesting space. I think what's going to happen with employees in governance if these companies are staying private for longer and what is who's making the decisions. And I think that's another area that inevitably is going to grow and people like you and other researchers, I'm sure will start publishing on this side because it, it's very it's still very early days and the way that you treated in your paper these uh, tensions between preferred and common shareholders and employees I think is excellent and makes a lot of sense and and I think uh, treats the the subject in, in a very coherent way so let's talk to finalize on this paper about the monitoring failures on on startups you know we've seen uber. Uh, that the you know the big failure there with Travis and the board we've seen Theranos we've seen SoFi Zenefits WeWork of course is now the big enormous case. Uh, you mention at least three issues, but you talk about managerial boards. What do you mean? And explain a little bit more. What how do you think about boards at in, in these companies?
1: Yeah. So um, one way of thinking about it is thinking about the contrast of public company boards. And public company boards are regulated um, by securities law and by the exchanges um, and require a majority of the directors to be independent, and that has a particular meaning about independence. Public company boards typically look like one particular thing because of that, um, largely independent, and are largely perceived as monitoring. um, And... Private company boards and specifically venture backed company um, boards look really different because they don't have that regulatory requirement of having a majority of independent directors. And the way that the board is um, negotiated um, and a matter of contract, there's typically designated board seats for like a series A constituency director or series B. It gets renegotiated with each financing typically. Um, And the result of that, I point out, is that. Um, we, we may not expect that these boards will function in the same way as far as monitoring. Instead, they have a highly managerial role um, as far as being involved in supporting the company with resources, with strategy, with trying to scale and get to growth quickly. Um, and the people that sit on the boards are all in a sense in investors or participants in one way or another, because they're either founders or executives or they're, investors and um in some sense that makes it a really strong board and and the literature has previously really imagined in many ways that it'll be a strong monitoring board because if you have skin in the game these venture capitalists are sitting on the board they have access to information and they have money invested you would expect them to be really strong monitors but as i point out um on the other hand the way that these companies um work is that you end up with people having these overlapping roles where they're a director, but they're also an investor. And they are dual fiduciaries. So they also owe fiduciary duties to their um, limited partners if they're a venture capital fund. Um, And those interests may be different than the best interests of the startup company. Um, You have uh, various scenarios um, as far as the relational situation between the venture capital firms and the entrepreneurs. They're repeat players. The venture capitalists may prefer to maintain a reputation as being founder-friendly so they can get into the next deal or get into the next round. Um, that means that that may make them less incentivized, act as the strong monitor. And they have this overarching goal, typically, of fast growth. And often, especially in the early stages of a company, you don't even know if it's going to be able to create a product or service that people want. It's not profitable, typically. And so you're just trying to get to either profitability or growth And so, it's not the time in which you're investing heavily in internal controls and compliance. Um, And that's been very typical of startup boards for a long time. We'll see if that changes. And it may change as companies mature. That would be a good development, in my view. Um, But there's systematic reasons why startup boards can end up having these oversight and monitoring issues.
0: And you mentioned Bill Gurley's quote there that he said Silicon Valley boardrooms have mostly become applauding audiences of clapping hands, which uh, is a very interesting uh, quote from somebody who was who's been involved in, in Uber and other uh, boards himself. But it really shows the distinction between the mentality of fire the founder versus founder friendly, which is one trend that is very important. Uh, you know, I believe in the mid-2000s, many VC firms got so competitive in getting into the deals and in investing in these founders that they were obliged to kind of grant the founders, you know, favorable terms. And and this changed the landscape, whereas before, uh, VCs in the boardroom would be very, very strict and would fire very quickly uh, founders and would keep, and there's been this kind of fight for control. And that's when dual-class shares come into play. So maybe we should say that all the top unicorns that went public or a big majority have these structures. It's only reserved for the very top companies. We're talking about Facebook and Google and and you know LinkedIn and all the top companies had these. What do you think about this trend? And what do you think about sunset provisions, which is the counter or, or some intermediary, uh, solution to that.
1: Yeah. Well, I have a project that I'm working on, uh, with Brian Brothman, um, in which we're trying to better understand actually when the dual class structures get put in place, because Mm -hmm. the, the research typically looks at IPO and later. Um, but, Uh, One thing that I came across when I was doing research for the startup governance paper is that there's actually different timing at play um, that in some instances, startups are putting dual class structures in place while they're still private and have a dual class structure for some period of time, a significant period of time before they even go public. Um, And so there's still, I think, a lot to better understand about the bargaining and dynamics that are going on in which companies have been able to get this put in place, and when they do, what the timing of that is. And then if there will be a sunset or some provision that allows for it to change. Um, So I think we better need to understand more data on this. But what we have are like surveys, and they show that the top echelon of startups have been able to bargain for it. Um, And what we've seen is huge pushback from the public markets on this. Um, In some instances, we've seen... Um, companies change their plans about whether they'll have that. In other instances, they go public with it anyway, and we've seen some companies succeed with this structure, and other companies um, uh, struggle and have ongoing governance challenges. I don't have a. Um, I don't have a dogma about whether dual class is good or bad. But I have an observation.
0: I love that. I love that. Let's keep dogma out of the discussion because that's exactly what happens in the marketplace, that people are so dogmatic about this question. You ask people in the public markets, at the CII, the yeah. Council of Institutional Investors, they are dogmatic. This one share, one vote approach is something you can't even discuss. So I love that you say that, that you don't have a dogma in this.
1: Yeah, question. and I, I, I think that in other areas of governance, historically we've been on a trend line for over a century of allowing more what we've called private ordering, more menu of options. Yet we have public markets that will press back against that because they tend to like, even though people say they don't want one size fits all governance. When you look at public company governance, it's been pushed in this direction to do things that like don't have dual class, you know, you have to have certain things in place. Um, And so it's been a really interesting trend to see more companies push push back in turn and say no we really we're going public with this new mm-hmm. class structure and there's various reasons that they can articulate why they think that's the the best approach for that company and i i think that um as far as sunsets go i also think we should allow for governance variation and experimentation and my colleague, Jill Fish, has a good paper with Stephen David L. Salman that basically says, uh, you know, with sunset provisions, if you don't think they're a good idea, like it, uh, going public, why do you think that like at some arbitrary point they should just be, you know, sunsetted? Like, I think there is a logical issue that goes on with like, how do you create a, a sensible plan for When that would change? For
0: people who don't know what a sensitive provision is, maybe explain that.
1: Um, Dual-class structures could be put in place where there is, um, um, we would say, at some point, a plan that you would change the structure. So, for example, that can be triggered by if one of the founders who might have um, high voting uh, stock, if they leave or die, for example, then you would argue perhaps that there isn't a reason to still have the dual class structure, or it could just be at some time period, like 10 years or 15 years or whatever it is. Um, and so a sunset provision is a provision that's put in place um, at time period one that says at time period two, the dual mm-hmm. class structure mm-hmm. or multi-class structure will change.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, You know, this, uh, I really enjoy this paper. And again, I I can't emphasize how good it is in terms of um, displaying the different, the myriad issues around governance. And and I really recommend everyone taking a read at it. Let's uh, switch gears and talk about your other paper on regulatory entrepreneurship that I also thought was very enjoyable. Um, And you create or you invent, I don't know if It was in place before, but this idea of regulatory entrepreneurship, which is pursuing a line of business in which changing the law is a significant part of the business plan. Explain the premise of the article and why you wrote about this topic.
1: Yeah, that's a co-authored paper with Jordan Berry, who's at the University of San Diego. And... Uh, Jordan and I wanted to study companies that have a significant part of their business model aimed at changing the law because it's not a new phenomenon, but we've been seeing this a lot lately. Um, And I started noticing basically startups engaging in kind of political activity. Some of it was like traditional lobbying, but some of it was activity that looked somewhat different, like Uber trying to mobilize its users to support it, um, changing the law in a city. Um, And so we we wanted to study that as a particular type of activity that we could understand the types of strategies that companies were using and what the implications of those different strategies might be for the types of laws that we would end up with and whether that would be a good or bad thing for society and socially optimal. And we wanted to study what sorts of legal and business factors would make a company that engaged in that type of activity more likely to succeed or not. Um, so that's what motivated us to do that paper.
0: So, so you give. Uh, you, I thought this was very good. You you identify three creative techniques <laughs> that these modern regulatory entrepreneurs have adopted in various combinations. Number one, they break the law, and they do something that is very common in Silicon Valley, which is they ask forgiveness instead of permission, and it's kind of the mantra, right? You know, if you think of the mantra, you know, maybe of of uh, Zuckerberg or Travis Kalanick at Uber, that was it. Um, and yeah, can I the say, second and one, it, that, um, yes,
1: uh, we say breaking the law or taking advantage of legal gray areas. And that's in part because in some instances, it's debatable whether they were actually breaking right, the law. Right, yeah, um, right, and right. even when they were. Arguably, clearly breaking the law, there might still be room to say, oh, but we're just operating in a legal gray area. So we would, we would say that category is, you know, has wiggle room as far as breaking the law or legal gray area.
0: Okay, okay. We're, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's good. And, and Well, the, the, the second uh, technique that you mentioned is they, see, they seek to grow you know, a too big to ban uh, before regulators can act. And, and you name this the guerrilla growth, which I thought was excellent. Uh, you know, what is that strategy about? Well,
1: um, it starts from the observation that there's different timelines and timing at play. There's one timeline that's like, for example, startups that can move pretty fast and, um, can grow, um, to have lots of users around the world potentially, um, that could happen in a, a short time span versus regulators and law, which typically moves slower, and um, so this strategy is to recognize that a company could try to scale and grow and especially gain uh, popularity of users in a time period before they would actually have regulatory enforcement. Um, and during that time period, they've not only uh, grown as far as their business, but they've also increased their lev- their political leverage because they're no longer you know some little company that nobody's heard of. At this point, People are using them. There may be, you know, even making money from them for their livelihood, you know, renting out a room in their house or uh, driving a car or whatever it is. Um, They might be using or uh, we use this uh, fantasy sports sites as another example at the time. It's been really big. Mm -hmm. People get used to using these products um, and then they might become, which is our next point, political supporters um, for the company.
0: Political supporters.
1: Yeah, so mm-hmm. the third strategy that and- we see is mobilizing users and other stakeholders for their political mm-hmm. power, for for-profit companies um, using their own users to express the voice that they want to change the law, that they love this product or service, that they think that it's unfair that the law actually doesn't allow for it or has this great area. Um, and
0: I love the anecdote, by the way, that you put in there where... In Portland, Uber had this ice cream uh, giveaway, and and they used the emails and contact information of everybody, and then did this political campaign, uh, which which I thought was was really smart. And and you know, uh, they they kind of used these political techniques, but now in the corporate uh, world, which I think is 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 really interesting. Yeah,
1: and you know, Uber has had so many uh, amazing examples of strategies that were related to these ideas. Um, other ones, I think, that are also very powerful and that we've seen used by lots of other companies um, is to basically lower the cost of civic engagement, mm-hmm. because one of the big issues has been that in many instances, we might support a product or service or some type of activity, but we have no idea who our local regulator is, or we don't know that what's actually happening at the company level, that they're getting these cease and desist letters. We don't know any of that. We're just users out in the world. But the companies, they have the data on their users. And a lot of these companies are platform companies. They don't have to be to be regulatory entrepreneurs. But it's very useful if they are because then they can, at a very low cost, just reach out to their users. When they open the app, they say, hey, do you want to sign this petition to let your local regulator know that you want this service? And then you've got thousands or hundreds of thousands of people signing petitions or getting involved. In a way um, that we hadn't seen before. There's also issues with that, that you could observe, like at the time that the person is signing the petition, they don't have all the information about whether this is good for society right. or what the costs are or whatever. Right, right. So we have this type of civic engagement, but it may not necessarily be informed
0: yeah and you know interestingly you you do mention at the beginning of the paper uh the case of Napster, which was one uh company that tried to upend the music industry, but the law wasn't you know in their favor and they lost out and and so you basically say this can you know you can end up with billions or you can end up with nothing and I thought that was a very good interesting story. Why do you think uh and you mentioned the distinctions between national federal laws versus you know, local or state laws, I mean, I, th- I thought that was an interesting insight in, 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 in how to think about regulatory entrepreneurship. Thanks.
1: So in the paper, Jordan Berry and I try to be very systematic in looking at what sorts of business factors and what sorts of legal factors um, might affect the, the outcomes and results of regulatory entrepreneurs. And on the law-related factors, one of the things that we uh, observe is that if the law that the company is trying to change it's a a federal or national law. Um, And if it gets litigated in court rather than in kind of the court of public opinion, like uh, through the legislative branches, but if it's in in a judicial decision on a federal law, like Napster was with copyright, that's a make or break decision for the whole company. And we saw that with Aereo more recently too. And Mm -hmm. um, uh, that is a a different uh, proposition then if you're a company that can go and have the flexibility of going into one jurisdiction at a time, changing your strategies. So for example, another thing Uber did was when there would be a city that would say, no, we don't want you in our city. They would go all around that city, gain popularity, and then put pressure on it. Or if Germany says no, okay, well, we'll go into this other country and build still there. So um, uh, uh, the, the type of law as far as whether it's a federal law or a state or local law can affect the flexibility of the company. Um, also, where it gets where it gets uh, disputed, if it's um, you know, if it's through a legislative branch that's subject to um, a political election, then the, the will of the people will matter more than if it's in a court, um, especially if it's not an elected judge. Um, And there's a range of other factors that we discuss as well, like the popularity of the law itself, uh, et cetera.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought thought that was a great paper. So let's switch gear. Uh, Now we're going to talk about uh, you know some rapid-fire questions to know more about you personally. Out of all of this governance, and by the way, thank you. I know we we went you know on a, a longer than expected on these governance questions, but we could be here hours because I love talking to you about governance. Uh, since you got so much oh, experience the, and wealth of knowledge, we're in the golden
1: age of corporate governance, Evan. There's so much <laughs> going on.
0: <laughs> That's great. Okay, so you know my first question is: What are the one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Uh,
1: Okay. Um, Well, I grew up in a family of readers. Both my parents, especially my mom, read to us as kids. Mm -hmm. Um, I was so lucky that way. And looking back on it now, it's like we read literature like uh, Treasure Island and Sherlock Holmes and Huckleberry Finn. So it was like amazing growing up with parents that read to me. Um, But if I think about one to three books that shaped my life, uh, well... The first book is a book that I can't even remember the title. I think it might have been called Pennywise or Money Sense. It was this kid's book. Okay. I, was, it, I was only like five, six, seven um, when I got this book. and had this yellow cover, and it was all these different ways to make money as a kid. And it was like all these creative ways. It. it was like way beyond just lemon stand, lemonade stand. And mm-hmm. I studied that book intensely. I was obsessed with it. And wow. I, I was so entrepreneurial minded. I was like a little Alex Keaton capitalist and I would like try to sell my own art to my parents. I would do all sorts of different things. Like my dad still tells the story of how like we would have a garage sale and I would stay out like sitting on the stoop until it turned dark waiting for the last struck, like straggling the like customer. Um, so that book, um, I ended up starting my own little business when I was 12 and like I, I that book just, I think to wow, ma- it. it was like, it was like so magical, the idea that you could think of ideas of how to make money. And, um, yeah, I also grew up in a family business and so I saw firsthand, like, this, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. W- you know, entrepreneurship. So that book I think was really important to me. Um, second book was Jack Kerouac's On the Road and yeah. uh, yeah. Stanford back in the, like, early to mid nineties used to ask this question on its, um, application was what's like, what book is the book that's most influenced Uh you. And I wrote my college um, application essay to Stanford about on the road. And I spent a year, um, I left high school after my junior year in the U S and I spent a year, what would have been my senior year in Switzerland and traveling. Mm -hmm. And on the road to me was like, Yeah, so influential in my thinking about um, what life is about and the kind of spirit that you uh, could have about new experiences and people. And uh, so that book was hugely influential. It might have also, I think, influenced my thinking when I was choosing colleges to go to California. And my husband, who I met um, in the 90s in the Bay Area, also loved the beat. Um, and so I, it was a connecting point for us. So I think that that book was also a big influence. And then the third book, mm-hmm. um, I think, would be Henry Hansman's Ownership of Enterprise. Um, oh, wow. My uh, uh, corporate law professor at Stanford, um, Mike Klausner, gave me that book. Uh, I took uh, corporations with him and then I did an independent research project in which I was studying a nonprofit that um, it's a hippie art ranch that incorporated as a nonprofit um, that my parents were involved in back in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And it still exists. And I um, was really interested in the structure that they had put in place to run this um, uh, art ranch um, as a nonprofit. And Mike Klausner gave me this book when I was a law student, uh, ownership of enterprise. And he was like, I think this will be up your alley. And I read the book and I was like, it completely solidified this passion for studying the corporate form, and um, it made me realize that I would like to be a corporate law professor mm-hmm. and study these kinds of things. Um, and it still, I you know, I cite it actually at the beginning of st- a startup governance. It still influences my mm-hmm. thinking.
0: Wow. I love them. I mean, those are three very different books in different (laughs) stages of your uh, career or or, um, preferences. uh, Very good. So, you know, you talked a little bit about uh, Klausner and others. Uh, Who were your mentors and what did you learn from them?
1: Um, Well, I think that word mentor means a lot of different things um, to people. But when I think just um, more broadly about who have been important teachers or advisors or supporters? I've, I've had so many. I've been so lucky in that way. Like all, the things that I've done, I really owe to so many other people, caring and investing in me. And um, as a life mentor, there was a family friend, uh, Lynn Stevens, as a child. Who she was a great life enthusiast and adventurer and traveler, and I spent a lot of time with her as a kid, all the way up through law school. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom um, is also um, a law professor and has been, <laughs> even as a mentor, a hugely important sounding board for sure. me. Um, and then um, in undergrad, there were a bunch of important teachers to me in anthropology Paula Ebron, Miyako Inoue, um, Sylvia Yanagisako, um, people who um, taught me about so- social and cultural theory. Um, uh, and introduced me to Anna Singh, an anthropologist at UC Santa Cruz, who I collaborated with on one of my first publications, um, in which we were thinking about, um, how social change occurs. And, and then in law school, Mike Klausner and Joe Grunfest, um, yeah, just hugely important. amazing. yeah.
0: I. I I think that's that's great. I mean, it, we should really emphasize, you know, these kind of mentors. I mean, they play such a big role in a life. And and as you said in the beginning, it's not only people professionally, but it's people in your life in general that kind of push you to do things. you know, on on a side note, I've just been listening to Michael Lewis's new podcast on coaches, and you know, it's just like. A coach and your baseball coach, when you are like 10 years old and changes your outlook, gives you new personality or new kind of uh, character and and people at a very early age, right? You know, create this image. And it's so important to have these people around you that, you know, we just see the end, you know, we see you as the professor and pan, but behind that and every person, right? There's a lot of other people feel that, that are important. I feel that so I strongly. You.
1: Um, As a sense Mm -hmm. of gratitude, but it's also just a daily thing because it continues. So, for example, like the first person who invited me to a, a law conference was Lynn Stout and she was a huge supporter of mine and her thinking still influences mine. Um, sometimes I challenge it. Sometimes I, I think she was really ahead of her time. She introduced me to Margaret Blair, who um, has always um, been one of my favorite scholars. And I collaborated with her. And then I, I currently still have senior colleagues like Jill Fish and Bob Thompson and Frank Partnoy and Hilary Sale, and others who helped me in all sorts of various ways um, and then also work with them. But it's so much more, like you say, too, like um, they're pro- in some sense, even the professional mentors are personal mentors, because you also see how they exist. So like, for example, when I got to co-author with Margaret Blair, one of the things that most impressed me was that Margaret is a very uh, distinguished legal scholar, very senior. And yet she's so humble and so intellectually curious we would work on something and say, I think this is right, but let's go both, you know, go back and research this and then we'll come back together and discuss it. And to see a senior scholar so intellectually curious on fundamental issues, like I think this thing that we all say is true is right. probably right, but let's go really dig into it. So like even on a personal level, um, I, I think that even the professional mentors give you so much more than just like a recommendation letter type of thing.
0: No, I think that's 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 great. So, are there any any quotes that you think of often, or do you live your your life by?
1: Yeah, um, I don't know that I live my life. Well, and there's two quotes that I th- that I think of often. One um, one quote. This probably like tells you my my kind of age and sensibility. Um, uh, I think of Yoda's. Uh, do or do not, there is no try. I think about that. That I think about that a lot. I like,
0: ah, love that.
1: thinking to myself, oh, I'll try, you know, blah, blah. And I think, no, there is no try. Like, <laughs> so, so Yoda, uh, Yoda. Yoda, and then, um, love it. Yeah, in recent years, um, I don't know when I came across it again, or if it just came to me. It's funny with quotes, like, sometimes the moment... Arises and then inside, still rattling around with some little bit of literature or something that you read years ago. I, I thought of Walt Whitman and um, mm-hmm. Leaves of Grass, Dismiss Whatever Insults Your Own Soul. And, you know, we've been in this time in the past few years where there's just so much politics and so much ugliness. And yeah. that quote I've thought of a lot like, Dismiss Whatever Insults Your Own Soul. Um, because I think it's so important. And um, that's the bit of it that I actually remember and think of a lot, Um, but it's actually part of a very beautiful preface to Leaves of Grass that says, you know, your very flesh shall become a great poem if you do that. Um, And so I think think in these times it's so important, you know, engage and listen, but also you have to dismiss whatever (laughs) insults your soul.
0: Yeah, more than ever, right? I mean, it seems like we in just this dark time where, you know, it's just bizarre. It's just like how did we get to where we are and uh it's just it, it it's good to have these kind of rocks and and kind of just step back for a little bit and and have these moments where you just can self-reflect. Yeah. Um, you know, what is the an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? <laughs>
1: I think um, my husband should answer this question probably rather than me <laughs> on my unusual habits because of course I think I'm totally normal. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, you know. Well, maybe it doesn't have know, to something be. Something absurd you know, uh, that I love. Well, I would say many things that are absurd I love simply because they're absurd. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that comes to mind is uh, Yayoi Kusama's art. I, I think if Okay. Absurd and I love it. Um, She does these infinity rooms and um, uh, the Broad Broad Museum in uh, downtown Los Angeles got one of her infinity rooms. It's just magnificent. And I waited for four hours to get one minute inside the room. And the first time I saw it, and it was the best piece of art that I had seen all that year. And then... She did um, a retrospective that I think she chose seven or so places in the world to send a, a bigger collection of her infinity rooms and in art. Um, and I got to see it. And um, thanks to Latham and Watkins, actually, I got a special um, chance to see it where I didn't have to wait in all of those lines. And I got to go through all of the, um, this retrospective. And it's so, in many instances, like her thinking is kind of absurd and fanciful and crazy. And I just love uh, it's. I think it's just one of the most exquisite things to, to wow. stand inside I'll her have room. To check
0: her out because uh, I, I I haven't seen it. So now now you've piqued my interest, <laughs> and uh, I need to understand that. Um, so another question is: Which living person do you most admire? Oh,
1: You're killing me, Evan. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, living uh, person who I most admire. Well, of course, the people that I love most dearly are people who I also probably most admire my mom and my husband, my best friend, who's a doctor in Sweden, um, who helps children and she also plays in a rock band on the side and she's a wonderful mother. Um, you know, people that are very close to me, they, they have these qualities that I think are so important about creativity and integrity and kindness. I, I admire people like that, but of course there's people out in the world and it's hard to think of who I most admire outside my closest circle. Um, there's so many people that I admire. Um, I admire Jane Goodall. I admire mm. I, I There's yeah. many people out there that are doing good, that I think that are in fields completely different than mine, but that have a passion for understanding the world and um, for learning and sharing that learning. That's what really excites me.
0: Well, Elizabeth, you know, I appreciate so much you coming in and and carving out uh, part of your time for this podcast. Uh, Where can people find you or find your research?
1: Um, If you search for my name, Elizabeth Pullman, P-O-L-L-M-A-N, you'll find my uh, website on the University of Pennsylvania Law School. And that lists my publications. And on SSRN.com, the Social Sciences Research Network, um, um, you can download my papers for free and uh, find works in progress.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much, Elizabeth. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. And uh, I hope you stay safe in this pandemic and uh, that everything goes well in your research and professional and personal endeavors. Thanks,
1: Evan. Thanks, listeners. And uh, best wishes to you all.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast with your friends or colleagues. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast at www.boardroom-governance.com.